Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk about my uterus. Though I will say, when I recorded the We Need to Talk About the Uterus episode, I had no intention of sharing the details of my story. Honestly, I prefer sharing other people's stories. But I can't sit here and encourage people to speak up and start conversations if I'm not willing to do it. So here I go. With my uterus, what I didn't realize along the way was how much the culture around me influenced how I spoke or didn't speak about things, and how those influences made me feel about my own body, and how that impacted my actions. So from a lack of conversation around periods, to my limited education about my own biology, to concerns for my career if I spoke about family planning, to silence around pregnancy loss and the accepting of medical gaslighting, to questioning my own intentions while seeking medical support, and to a final sense of relief when doctors confirmed that my pain was real. My story includes a lot of topics that are taboo and triggering. I know some listeners have faced or are still facing these challenges, and I appreciate all of you who have messaged me to share your stories after the last uterus episode. I hope this continuation of my story will be helpful for someone out there. In this episode, I'll start with some background about my uterine health, including stories of pain and some stories of joy. Then you'll hear a clip I recorded the weekend I had my surgical consultation while I was still unsure about the treatment path. And then modern-day Megan will jump back in to talk through the week before surgery, surgery, recovery, and more. Check the show notes for details, links, and related episodes. While you're there, find links to support with Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee, and you can sign up for the newsletter for bonus content. But let's go ahead and start my story. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this is Balancing Cultures. I have always had difficult periods, but I assumed everyone did. As I mentioned in episode 43, we need to talk about the uterus, there was a lack of conversation, and that let me assume that my experience was everyone's experience, and so I felt I had no right to complain or question my health. I just thought this is what women go through. This is why we complain about it so much and why the commercials call it the curse or make it sound so miserable. The culture around me was a lack of conversation within my own family, a lack of conversation and education at school, and so the only thing I really had was the TV commercials for tampons and pads convincing me that this was something to keep secret, to dread, and to put up with. Now, one thing I do remember that could be a silver lining or a positive cultural influence around periods for me growing up was that my dad had no issue buying feminine hygiene products for my mom and I. I, I have a vivid memory of this, that he would run to the store for us when we were feeling run down and menstruating. Yes, I'm going to throw out all the words during this episode. I hope you're okay with that. My dad was the type that was disgusted by burps, but menstruation was just a part of life. 
It didn't mean we talked about it. But he knew because my periods were so bad, there was no hiding when I was on my period. So he would go by the store, buy the products, get a bottle of Sprite or ginger ale and a couple of snacks for me. I would lay in bed with a heating pad on and then we'd move on with our lives. Now, after a few years from 16 to 18, uh, near the end of high school, my periods were so intense. I remember my brother picking me up off the bathroom floor and helping carry me to bed. I have a vague memory of my first pelvic exam at Kaiser Permanente, a healthcare company. I remember my mom was there, but I asked her when I called her this week to let her know about the things I'll be talking about in this episode, giving her a little warning. I asked her, did, was there any conversation about birth control or treatment plans? And she said, no, they just recommended Midol. Midol is a, a feminine-targeted pain relief. And so that's all I had for years and years. It wasn't until I got to university and I was living with other ladies, there ended up being six of us who lived together, that I started seeing and hearing these other perspectives. You know, these ladies were raised differently from me. Four out of the six of them had sisters. And so they grew up having more conversations around this. And I started hearing all these different perspectives and openness around female health. And I thought, maybe I can go get another opinion. So I went to the doctor again, and they recommended either I get an implant, because by then those were available um, as birth control, or the oral contraceptive pill. I went for the pill. And one positive is it did regulate my period as it's advertised to do. The other thing was it made me ill. Every day it made me sick. The hormones were not correct for my body, but I, again, didn't have enough knowledge around what should be happening with my body to know that that was not okay. So I put up with it for months, shifting the time I took the pill to the evening so I could at least sleep through the majority of the symptoms. I still remember being at the library late at night, because that's what you do as a college student, and having to take my pill and thinking, I can rush through the rest of my studying and still get home before the symptoms hit me, and I didn't manage that and had to call my college boyfriend to pick me up and drive me less than two miles home because I couldn't walk. It was shortly after I decided to stop taking the pill. But again, this lack of knowledge around my own biology and my own rights to feel healthy were lacking. As I got older into my 20s, my period did regulate itself. We talked about this in the We Need to Talk About the Uterus episode, that that is part of female biology, that through our teen years and early 20s, we are still regulating ourselves and our body is still trying to find a rhythm. Mine just happened to be a very painful process, unfortunately. I just accepted that that was the way life is. Once a month, sometimes I had to call in sick or take a day off or heavily medicate, and I just moved on with it. In my late 20s, I met my husband, we got married, and wanted a family as soon as possible. Now, I will put a trigger warning out here. I am going to be talking about fertility challenges and loss in the next few minutes. It's an emotional story. 
Um, but I promise that happiness arrives later. If you need to, you can skip ahead. Okay. After seven months of trying, in May 2015, we saw two lines. We were pregnant. We did the classic move, though, of keeping it quiet. We wanted to wait until 12 weeks, this kind of socially acceptable time to tell people. And I was living my life as normal. And so I went to the gym like I did every morning. And I met my gym buddy, David Song. He's the Korean Texan from episode 15. But before we could even do a workout, I was feeling a bit run down and like I needed to go to the bathroom. I assumed it was morning sickness. I was gone for an abnormal length of time for a toilet visit. And I'm sure David was getting concerned. I was trying to get back to the weight room, but every time I would leave the bathroom, my body was telling me, no, go back, go back to the toilet. I was feeling so ill. The color drained from my face. I started sweating. My blood pressure dropped. I finally, slow motion, made it back to the weight room to check in with David. By then, two other teachers were there, and everyone looked at me in shock. I must have looked like a ghost. And before I could protest, one teacher was helping me lay down on the floor. The other one ran across campus, not a short distance, to grab her car, pulled around the back of the gym. They helped load me in the back seat and rushed me to the hospital. I had no idea what was going on, but Lisa, who was in the passenger seat, was reaching back and holding my hand as I laid in the back seat and was asking me questions about my pain. Where does it hurt? Have you eaten something awkward? Is there something unusual about your routine lately? And then she paused and half whispered, are you pregnant? And I nodded. She looked to Anne-Marie in the driver's seat, looked back to me, and suddenly everyone knew what was happening. The hospital confirmed our loss before my husband could even make it to the hospital. He was there as I was trying to fill in the papers for anesthesiology and a DNC. I don't know what else to tell you about how difficult this day was. I'm sure many listeners know this personally. Um... Some things that added to the difficulty for for me and my husband was the fact that, one, we had to do everything in German. And I don't know, that just added a layer to it that I couldn't do it in my mother tongue in a way that I felt comfortable. Even the paperwork was in German, and it was this moment where we're even getting out our phones to make sure we're translating things correctly and understanding everything. And it felt like, you know, in the middle of our loss, we're doing homework. And that was it just added to the heaviness. And then to add another layer, no one knew we were pregnant. So no one knew what we were going through. And my first instinct as, you know, I kind of came to the other side or maybe a dip in my path of grief was... How do I cover this up? How do I hide the fact that I had a miscarriage? Because I don't want work to find out we're trying to have a baby. I don't want people to know because 
especially now that I know it might not work for us. We've been trying for months, and now our first pregnancy has ended in a loss. I don't want this to impact my career. Because, of course, my, my brain went down this slippery slope of, I may never be a mother. Uh, maybe my career is the only thing I'll have. I need to be in line for promotions. They'll never promote me if I'm trying to plan a family. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had this slippery slope of thoughts. And so I quickly came up with a plan to cover my tracks and say, I fainted at the gym and I've got these other symptoms and we're looking into it. The, the two women, the two teachers who took me to the hospital, Lisa and Amory, never told my story to anyone. I think even without talking about it, we all knew the pressure of that situation. And they had the respect for me as a woman or as someone in the middle of family planning to know the sensitivity of this information. The reason I'm finally sharing this story publicly is because I feel it is a huge part of my uterine story. And it's so common, but is not always shared. And so I'm, I'm finally here to be a part of that conversation publicly. Now, another reason it's a, a huge part of my uterine story is because in the same moment that they confirmed my miscarriage, they found my fibroids. And in episode 43, you heard me talk about, you know, when I got my diagnosis of fibroids, it didn't feel like a diagnosis. Well, I didn't mention it then, but this is one of the reasons. There was a lot more going on at the moment. But what I said in episode 43 still stands. They said it as if it was a benign mole, something to be discovered, but not to be managed or dealt with in any way. And so... I didn't do anything about my fibroids, but I did utilize them as a part of my story for work. And so for the next couple months, I used my fibroids as the excuse for why I fainted in the gym that day and why I wasn't feeling well. I then used it as an excuse for all the moments in the next few months when I would have to go for blood work or fertility support. I kept saying I'm going back for the monitoring of my fibroids. I need to get these tests and things done. I'm checking in with a specialist about this. I even had this plan in my head that if someone caught me walking to or from, or in the worst case scenario that someone caught me in the fertility clinic, I had this story in my head ready that, oh yes, this person is a specialist for fibroids. That's why I'm here. What I look back on now with disbelief is the fact that I didn't actually think I needed to look into my fibroids. I was using that as my story, as my cover-up, but I never actually looked into them. I never did anything about my fibroids. They were just my mask that I wore to cover up my story of family planning, fertility, support, and everything else. And I used them as an excuse again when I had another miscarriage around New Year's. But I promise some happiness. I promise some happiness. So here it comes. Are you ready? Listeners who've gotten to know me will know I'm the take action type, the be in control type, the to-do list type. So you're not shocked to hear that within a month after my miscarriage, I did book my husband and I in for medical exams and fertility support. I did start going to the fertility clinic to get things checked and to know that my levels were in the right place. I went for that second opinion finally. 
And our fertility journey is a story for another day. But here's the happiness. November 2016, I gave birth via C-section to my beautiful 4.1 kilo baby. The happiness did not end there. We had another healthy baby in 2018, and now we live in the beautiful chaos of parenting. And for one more dose of happiness, because I think we can all use it, once I was pregnant, I had easy pregnancies. I had less pain and nausea being pregnant than I did in my month-to-month life with periods. Despite struggling to get pregnant, my body loved being pregnant. Loved it. Talk about a twisted silver lining. But we need to get back to the fibroids. I have no idea how long I had them, but it was in June 2015, two days before my 30th birthday, when I had my miscarriage that I was first told about the fibroids. Then through my fertility process of pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, next pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, the fibroids grew and grew. Now the doctors thought that once I stopped breastfeeding and my hormones stabilized after my daughter was born, that the fibroids would either shrink or at least stabilize. Nope, they just kept growing. And between 2019 and 2021, up until when I had my surgery, they got so big that they were putting pressure on my other organs. And I had daily discomfort, not just around the time of my period, but throughout my entire cycle. And so I finally decided, although my doctor, my gynecologist was a fantastic support through my pregnancies and in a lot of other ways, he was not the person to guide me through this chapter with fibroids. I needed a second opinion. So I went, got a second opinion, then that led to a surgical consultation, and that's what you're going to hear about next in this little journal entry I did the weekend I had my surgical consultation. Okay, I'm jumping in the sound booth quick just to kind of journal this out the way that I journal things out, which is talking through things. I guess this has been a long time coming. Years and years ago, while we were trying to get pregnant, they discovered that I had fibroids. And for a long time, my doctor said, watch and wait, watch and wait. And I did an episode with a woman talking about not only fibroids specifically, but what it's like How do I want to say this? What it's like as a woman, whether you're seeking a diagnosis or seeking treatment, when it comes to female health or uterine health specific things, that we feel the culture is underinformed, or the the, that doctors there's a culture of lack of information, lack of conversation. And so, yeah, we have to advocate for ourselves, we have to inform ourselves, and we have to decide, kind of in a way, when we want to fight to know more. And once we know more, if we want to fight to do something about it. And so a couple weeks ago, I finally made the decision to say, okay, my doctor has been telling me with these fibroids, watch and wait, watch and wait. And they kept growing and growing and growing. And I got frustrated because it finally ended with, you know, two months ago, him finally saying, oh, actually now they're quite large and you should get surgery. 
but they're at the point where it's not going to be an easy surgery, likely. And I got really frustrated because not only was he telling me we watched and wait, waited too long, but he also followed up by saying because of the pandemic, he didn't advise me to seek out any type of surgical option or to actually look anywhere for treatment because I would not be prioritized. So I sought a second opinion. I went to another doctor. The second she saw me, she she did the same thing. She gave me the rundown of, oh, well, most people and blah, 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 blah. And even though it was a female doctor, I did feel like I was being mansplained about something I've been kind of living with for years and years, probably living with longer than, than I even knew about them. But it, anyways, she finally says, okay, let me have a check. She does a physical check and goes, oh, okay, well, here's a, rec- a referral to a surgical consultation. So that's where I was this morning. With the surgical consultation, it's like the most modern, best screen. And so, of course, they got the best imaging of what's going on in my uterus. And he does the same, oh. And I was like, okay, well, good and bad feeling from that. The good feeling is, okay, I feel like I'm not, and I hate using this word, but I felt for a while like it was in my head, like I was going crazy because I wanted to do something about it or I had these symptoms and no one else felt like that was something to be concerned about or to talk about even. And so I felt finally justified in in my pain and my frustration with the way my body has been. So that was like the sweet. The sour was, okay, now I've got to like, I have to have surgery. I don't have to. These are likely non-cancerous masses, like 90-something percent chance. But they are causing physical discomfort and other symptoms. And so the best path when they are this size, they have grown to a size that diet, exercise, and homeopathy is not going to help me. Um, And hormone treatments would reduce but not remove all of these things. So surgery is is the path. And that is the the decision I now need to make in the next two weeks because we've booked the surgery so that I can get it done as soon as possible. Um, in two weeks, I'm booked for a surgery. When I walk into the room, he has told me that it is my choice whether they attempt to just remove the fibroids, multiple, two very large ones and multiple smaller ones. They won't even know exactly how many until they get in there. They can attempt to remove all of them, but there's a chance then that they miss one and I get growths later and that would result in a second surgery, like Karen, who I interviewed. Um, There is a chance in all of this that the uterus gets damaged But there's another option. So one is just try and remove them. The other option is take out the uterus, meaning I wouldn't have a uterus. It means I'm getting a hysterectomy. I can't even say it. I'm getting a little choked up. Um, But it would mean removing all chance of future growths and future surgeries and potential cancer. Again, it is a small chance for cancer. I am not someone who is potentially removing my uterus because of a cancer risk. It is because of these growths, other symptoms, and the smallest chance of cancer. 
And this is the decision I need to make in the next two weeks. Yeah, that's what's, uh, that's what's going on with me. So for the next few days, I'm going to start telling the people I know because I really, one, I want people to know what's going on in my life because with every surgery comes risk and I want people to know ahead of time what's going on. But also, I do want to start breaking the stigma about not having, you know, that, that we're not supposed to have conversations about our lady parts, about how people with uteruses, uteri, are not supposed to talk about the things that go on with our uteri. And I'm over that because I've been in pain long enough, whether it be periods or fibroids or everything else that goes along with a uterus. I'm done doing all of this in silence because I know I'm not the only one. And I don't want everyone else to feel like they need to be silent and suffer in silence just because the rest of us are. I think one by one, we need to start talking about the things going on with our bodies. One, so we can be more informed. Two, so we don't feel so alone. And three, so the next generation doesn't feel like they need to make up code words for periods and vaginas. I'm over it. So I'm going to go now and have some conversations with friends and my husband and try and make a decision and I'll check back in with you. So between the surgical consultation and my surgery, I had two weeks to figure out what I wanted to do. I did what helps me best, and that was talk through things. So I talked to my college roommates, one of which is a nurse who actually works in this field and has assisted with the recovery of people who have had hysterectomies and myomectomies, which is the removal of the fibroids. She gave me very concrete kind of black and white advice, which I needed. Within that same group, I've got the more emotional side of things and the people who understand the other aspects of health and recovery. And I got those opinions. And then I talked to my mom friends who gave a very different perspective because they live in Germany and they understand the healthcare field here and what goes on. They also understand the expat side of things, that getting a surgery is not just about the physical side of what my body is going to go through and the physical risks. It's the after. The fact that it takes weeks of recovery and it's just my husband and I and our two kids. And I needed to balance and weigh how this surgery and my recovery would impact our life as a family and whether or not we could manage that without grandparents nearby and extended family. And so this was all a part of the decision. And of course, I talked to my husband because even though we always said two kids is all we need, there is this feeling you get when they say hysterectomy that that's more final than even the final decision you'd already made. So we had to have conversations about, is this really the end for us? Which I felt like we'd had before when we decided that two was enough, but we had to have those conversations over again. And in the end, as you know, from the title of this episode and from what I've been posting on social media, I ended up choosing the hysterectomy. 
with all the things that I talked through with friends and family. And in the end, I felt I felt like I made the right decision for me. It's not the right decision for everyone, but all medical decisions are individual. All health decisions are individual. And this is my story. So that's what we did. So I went on May 20th and had my uterus removed. Now here's a few kind of medical details. If you're not good with medical details, you can go ahead and skip ahead. So for the surgery, I had my uterus removed, but the fallopian tubes and the ovaries stay, so I don't need hormone replacement therapy. But something we did not expect is when the doctors got in there, they found not just the fibroids, but endometriosis. And the surgical notes say not just adhesions, but a lot of adhesions. And it was one of those moments where I felt this weird sense of relief that I, it wasn't just in my head. I wasn't over-exaggerating my symptoms. I really had something wrong with my body and it needed medical attention. And advocating for myself was the right thing to do. I needed that moment of clarity where they type up, a doctor types up in his surgical notes, there was something wrong and this was a necessary action. And that made, I don't know, it, it made me feel like I was right to listen to my body. And it encourages me in the future to believe me when I feel a certain way, to not listen to all the voices and influences around me saying, oh, but maybe, or could it just be, or that's just the way life is. No, I don't feel right, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to seek information, and I'm going to have conversations. And so, yeah, that's something positive that came out of this surgical experience. I feel... Compared to the two C-sections I've had, this recovery has been much, much easier. I was able to get up and go to the restroom on my own hours after surgery and move about. The hardest part for me, two things. One, okay, three things. One, the physical limitations. I am an active person. I am an involved person. I always have my to-do list. I'm always on the go. And slowing down was really difficult for me in general. But then the two other things that I found difficult in terms of physical, one, the gas that they pump into you for surgery, because when they do the laparoscopic surgery, they need to inflate your abdomen to have room to move around. That gas that they pump into you takes days to then, or weeks, to kind of be released out of your body. And it pushes on your, what I've learned, it pushes on your diaphragm in a way that gives you intense shoulder and back pain. And that was worse than the pain of the incisions and my abdomen where the surgery actually happened. That's the only reason that I took any type of ibuprofen after surgery. I really didn't need painkillers afterwards. The other thing that's been really difficult for me is I am someone with naturally low blood pressure. And since surgery, it's been more difficult to manage that. 
and I get dizzy every time I stand up. And so I waited to drive for over three weeks. I've just started driving this week and I did a few test runs with my husband in the car. And then today, as I'm recording this on Tuesday, uh, June 15th, was the first time I drove by myself in a car almost four weeks later. And so that, that's that been challenging. Luckily, we're in a place where we're not car dependent. I've been able to go for a lot of walks. I was able to do minimal grocery shopping and take these tiny steps in my recovery to kind of take back my role that I take pride in, which is the household manager. My husband did a fantastic job taking on these roles as I was in my recovery, which made recovery so much easier, knowing I didn't need to feel guilty about him taking on those extra responsibilities. And my kids were wonderful too. And I think one of the reasons my kids handled it so well was I prepped them ahead of time. I took Anne's advice from episode four way, way back when we talked about you need to use books and resources to have difficult conversations with kids before the event. Her example was about losing teeth. We should let kids know that this is something that happens to your body before they lose their first tooth, because otherwise that might be a bit shocking. And so the same thing with my recovery, I knew it would be difficult for them to process that mom is laying down all the time and is in potential pain and needs to sleep more and can't pick me up and snuggle me if I didn't explain it ahead of time. And so when I used the book, What Makes a Baby, to help them understand what would be going on in my body, because there is a picture of a uterus in the book, and it talks about the uterus as the place where babies grow. And in that book, they also show that they also show C-sections as a way that babies come out. And so I was able to show this image of the two doctors dressed in the gowns and the woman laying on the table and having her belly opened, and it's very child-friendly, to help explain to them what my surgery would be, that that's exactly what mama would look like, they're going to help fix the awa inside my belly, and they're going to take away my uterus because it's kaput. And so when I came home, they took such good care of me, bringing me water and asking me about my awas, and my son, who I think will be a doctor, wanted to see my stitches, wanted to check them every day. So that's kind of the just before, the during, and the directly after of my surgery. So here I am, almost four weeks post-op and feeling good, getting back to my usual routines. I even drove the car today. I'm grocery shopping and cooking and podcasting. I'm doing all the things and it feels great. I'm still going to take it slow. I'm going to build in breaks to my day. I'm going to make sure I'm putting my health first and listening to my body and considering what Meredith said in episode 45 about holistic health and lifestyle, looking at all the aspects of my health, not just diet and exercise, and listening to my body and what it needs. So... If I need to sit down, I'm going to sit down. If I need more sleep, I'm going to go to bed early. And I hope to carry on these routines and this focus on health beyond 
the kind of typical recovery period. Because four to six weeks is kind of standard recovery time for a hysterectomy. But really, the internal healing of this surgery can be months, year, years beyond that initial recovery period. And so maybe I can use that as an excuse, because I feel like I need an excuse to put myself first, to continue some of these health habits that I've put in place during these last four weeks. So I look forward to that. I want to say a big thank you to my husband, who's been my biggest support during this time, who really made it possible for me to have this recovery period so that I can feel so good at only four weeks post-op. And a big thank you to my friends and family who either made meals or sent notes or shipped me books to read to help with the mental and emotional side of not having a direct family support system nearby. That's the life we've chosen, living abroad, living in a country that neither of us was born into. But we love this life, and it's, it's so wonderful to know that we can still manage these big life events in this way, living the lifestyle that we like in the country we want to be in. And my last big thank you goes out to you all, my listeners, for your wonderful messages that you sent me after the first uterus episode and the encouragement you've given me as I've given updates about my hysterectomy and surgery and recovery. I appreciate you all so much for your words of encouragement and letting me know when episodes I create help you because that's what I'm hoping to do, to start these conversations, to encourage people to either have those conversations in their own circles or maybe with these episodes about health specifically that you are encouraged to go advocate for yourself and ask those questions and ask why when you're feeling a certain way. And so I'll encourage you to do that now. Go, seek, find, question, have those conversations. If you enjoyed this episode and others, consider leaving a review on your favorite platform or you can support me through Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon. Everything is available on balancingcultures.com or link in bio on social media. Thank you for listening. This was Balancing Cultures, and I'm Megan Kitchen. Megan Kitchen.